So, there are a lot of questions here. This is about, uh, I've been teaching for a few years now and I find it difficult to drop that role even during personal practice. How do I let go of my group and remain here for me? <clears throat> so that, uh, <clears throat> this is, uh, these words like teacher is, uh, is another convention that we, you know, we need to uh, recognize is, uh, is an identity and how to use it so it's not, they're not attached or, uh, you know, that feeling that that's our, that's mine, my identity. So how I've done it is this, the teaching, even though my name's Ajahn Samedo, Ajahn means teacher, that in Thai, it's a kind of title, conventional title, but uh, teacher, you know, when when is it appropriate? Mindfulness allows me to know when teaching is the thing to do and when it's not. That is being aware of time and place, and uh, so this is mindfulness and wisdom. If I think I'm a teacher, ongoing teacher, you know, even when I'm asleep, you know, somebody comes to see me, they say, Ajahn Sameto is sleeping now, and the impression is that I'm even teaching while I'm asleep. <laughs> but that's a convention, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's just a, a, a name and that, but there's no... I'm certainly not uh, teaching when, when I'm sleeping. or the, And also it gets in the way like thinking I am a teacher, therefore I have to teach you something. So some people that are obsessed with being teachers, they're always, they always have to have students to teach. And that can be a pain, isn't it? They <laughs> have to be somebody's student all the time. So, you know, this is, you know, when, but that's the, the logic. If, you're, if your main identity is I'm a teacher, then, then unquestioningly you, you relate to people as a teacher. And then, uh, then even your friends or husband or wife for that become your students. Uh, so, I mean, teacher, student, that's a, conventional relationship. When is that appropriate? You know, and, it, and so this Sakya uh, Ditti, when, when the attachment to this identity uh, is, you know, becomes Sakya Ditti and when it's not. So this is, uh, you know, it becomes Sakya Ditti when I'm a teacher and, and uh, and, and then I feel I have to teach all the time. My relationship to people is teaching them. And then, and, and, and then I'm, you know, I feel that people should listen and respect what I say. And then I, uh, you know, and then I get upset when people kind of reject my teaching. And uh, so when it becomes sakaditi, then you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to suffer. Also, being a teacher is, you know, this is, in, is also a position of responsibility because you're, you know, you're teaching, you're talking about things, you're in a powerful position, people listening, and people project all kinds of things onto teachers. So they say, my teacher, you're my teacher, <clears throat> and... Uh, the teacher, uh, you know, can feel that he has to, he or she has to, you know, 
be responsible for the students and and also to keep that very clear. So some, sometimes you really take yourself as a teacher terribly serious. You're you kind of relax with anybody because it would put you in a state where you know you're not you're not the role of the teacher is no longer operating. So so you know I've known monks who 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 operate as teachers almost all the time. And they kind of never relax because of it. <laughs> and so these are, or you know, abbot of a monastery or any position of authority that is, uh, you know, if taken and not reflected on, then becomes another form of sakyaditi. <clears throat> and then you get lonely because you, you know, you 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 set yourself up always as having to be this. And uh, also, you know, like being a Buddhist monk, you, you've got this idea that you've got to be an impeccable example to others. You know, so you feel this sense of burden of always having to set, set a high standard of impeccability all the time in the monastery. And uh, this makes you incred- incredibly lonely because uh, you're no longer human. You're always acting the role, you know, sitting very straight and being incredibly mindful and afraid of telling a joke or relaxing because somebody might think that you're, you know, you're losing it or you're not serious. (laughs) And then people, you know, expect teachers or senior monks or nuns to to be living examples of purity and goodness. So then when they see, you know, anger in us or something, they could become disillusioned. Because they, they want, maybe you want me to be perfect for you, you know, the impeccably wise, kind uh, Ajahn meditation master and then when you see me in a when I'm not in, in living up to your high standard of of what you want then you become disillusioned so you get criticism you know I've disillusioned a lot of people in my life <laughs> not out of intention but <laughs> because this is this you know I've done it and also you know this but this is where this mindfulness is is uh, is uh, the only way to be free from suffering. Becoming an arjan is no, you know, can be another form of suffering. <laughs> or becoming a Buddhist monk or nun, you know, you think that, that that can be another form of suffering, another sakyaditi problem. Uh, so then. There's some that go the other way. I'm not an Ajahn. I don't want to be an Ajahn. I don't want to be a teacher. Uh, you know, look at those teachers. They're always, you know, teaching us. And then, you know, they think, I don't want to be like that. And uh, teachers have special meetings of teachers' meetings that <laughs> students can't come to. And, and you feel left out. And that they're probably plotting something, you know. In a, getting together to find out, you know, how to, you know, cause you more misery. <laughs> you get paranoid around authority or anyone that has a, a position of power over you. So then you can go the opposite. I don't want to ever be a teacher or uh, be in an authoritative position. I just want to be an ordinary person. You know, I don't want to be special. I just want to be an ordinary person. And I want to be so ordinary that I'm special. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm more ordinary than Anjan Emerald. You know. Uh, it, it gets ridiculous, doesn't it? How, you know, whatever whatever position you take of wanting to be uh, 
important and respected and looked up to and and you know be a successful teacher and be praised or the other is you know I don't want that I have utter contempt for the conceit and the arrogance that comes from people in power and uh, you know then you can name instances where you've seen all kinds of unpleasantness to justify so that you you, you know, you're taking pride in your ordinariness or your humility. And so, it, it, you know, whatever, on Sakyaditi level, it, one going from one extreme to the other, is, well, this is where the mindfulness is, is the only way out of, the, out of that, is to see that, that what, however you create yourself is just an ordinary person, nobody special, or a very special person, that that's a creation you make and attach to. And when you see that, 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 that this is a condition that, that you've created, an identity that you're attached to, then you begin to recognize the suffering that comes from attaching to any sense of yourself as being anything, good, bad, ordinary, special. So it's uh, power, uh, the students, the training, students that are training to be teachers, met with them in the morning of the first day, and they're talking about power and authority. These are, uh, you know, these are, need to be understood, uh, not in terms of, my power or my authority and my responsibility, but but how to you know to to be mindful of the conditions. Like I'm in right now, I'm in a powerful position, sitting here, you know, talking to you because everybody's looking at me, and then you know I'm I'm in a position of power. Now you can. Uh, you know how to use this power then is is discerning how you know if I'm just using it uh, for myself out of sakyaditi then I, I can be you know a tyrant um, you know I'm just using it holding on to it and won't let anybody else have it because I I want it or I'm you know I won't let go like Mugabe in Zimbabwe, <laughs> to total where you you'll destroy the the whole uh, the whole thing out of your determination to keep power is is one extreme. So then you you know and if people uh, empower me, you know they give me their attention, their trust, their, they're giving me power. Then it's how to use that, you know, in a skillful way. Not just, you know, if I'm just using it for my own emotional needs, then that's not very, that, that isn't mindfulness. That's a neurotic need of, you know, wanting, wanting to be empowered and be given authority and the, so that I can somehow feel I'm uh, important and powerful person. But if I find myself in a powerful position like this, then how to use this position? So this is what I've been doing over this retreat. You know, the the reflections I give are, you know, my intention is to empower you. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in. In, uh, in maintaining an illusion of I'm your teacher and you're my student and, and, and need that kind of, uh, you know, want to keep that relationship as an ongoing, uh, unquestionable uh, role of my life. But you know, I see the way, from my experience in teaching in, in the West, the problems of Western people, European people, or Americans who come to Buddhism when they're adults, and they they don't have the 
the cultural foundation, say, that people born in Buddhist countries have. And, um, you know, we, 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 we have a mindset based on Judaism and Christianity and uh, Western science. Uh, you know, that's even if you're not Jewish or Christian, there's still very strong, you know, the attitudes of, of our civilization. Uh, you know, the, the thing that is very much, that's the basis of the Christian creation theory uh, the, or the Darwinian theory or the, the uh, reason, you know, the modern science and its analysis and reason is one, and then, but that's also usually underpinned by a kind of Judeo-Christian assumptions of, of cultural conditioning that's part of a, a like the underlying a, a, a particular uh, culture or civilization. So in, say in Asia, you have a different, you know, like uh, Buddhism, Taoism, in China, Hinduism, in India, that these are, these are not theistic forms of religious practice. So they they are you know even with Hinduism with all its deities with uh, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and Indra, and Parvati, and all the rest. These are these are not taken as in the way that uh, uh, we would, you know, from this civilization, take it. You know, so we see it as, from the Christian view, as they believe in all kinds of gods and idols, so they worship idols. I remember I spent a few months in Benares five years ago in in Varanasi, and and there used to be this Kali shrine near where I was staying. You know, so this friend of mine would take me down to have tea every evening, and I'd be looking at this Kali shrine, and uh, you know, and it's uh, you know, it looked like a demon to a Western mind, and black uh, female with her with her tongue hanging out, necklace of skulls, uh, and you know, that like a demon mask in in our cultural perception. And then, uh, you know, necklace of skull, that's, and, and, you know, with their tongue out, looking fierce, and, dis, and the goddess of destruction, and all that kind of thing. So, you know, when the uh, British colonial the period, they just thought they worshipped they worship demons. Because that's the, that's the cultural interpretation. That's how you, maybe you first would see it. But that's not how a Hindu sees it. And so the, 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 their icons there uh, come from a different place than, than our, than say, the way we would see it. And this is cultural and religious. So in, in, in our own, uh, like in my own experience, being brought up in Christian uh, family, it's a very dualistic conditioning I've had. You know, my, it's, you know, it's heaven and hell, right, absolute right and wrong, and good and bad. And this is, the, you know, these are, God is, is uh, unquestionable, and, and God and Jesus, these are, uh, we've taught that Jesus, this is historical, and, and so that Somehow, because it's historical, it must be right. But if you're a historian, you realize how much history is not particularly the truth, and how it is one way of looking at it. You, when I was studying uh, for my master's at Berkeley in Indian culture, read a history of India written by a British historian or by an Indian about the same period, you wouldn't know it was the same country. <laughs> So, it, <laughs> and is one right or the other wrong, or is it the way you know a British colonial or a, a, 
a European mindset would view India and the history that took place when, uh, during the British period, or from the Indian position. So this takes reflection, isn't it? It's not, there. and so the, the pointing to this, this unconditioned, unborn, and and encouraging you to awaken is, is is what I'm trying to, you know, the teaching. If you think this is a teaching, then it it's more like a encouragement, or you can even see it as an empowerment because. I'm not trying to really teach you, I'm not asking you to believe anything that I say, that, that this is the real Buddhist teaching and my interpretation is right and, and anyone who disagrees is wrong. And, and then I become a teacher, uh, you know, who's, who, who always has to be right by putting down everyone else. And so, you know, to, to make... When you always have to be right, then you also have to, you know, anyone that doesn't go along with you is wrong. Because it's dualistic, see. The, the, you know, then right or wrong, wrong or right. Then the story I tell about, you know, training with Ajahn Chah, now his emphasis was on the, so much on the Vinaya discipline, the, the training of a monk in, with this discipline they're called the Vinaya. So the Vinaya is uh, uh, then the then after about three or four years with Ajahn Chah I went, I went to visit Buddha Dasa at, at Watsuan Mok in Suratani. And so Ajahn Buddha Dasa asked me, what do you well, you know, he didn't really know much about Ajahn Chah or anything, so he asked me what I was said, Well we're very uh, we practice the Vinaya very strictly. And he says, oh, you don't, you just need to be mindful, you don't need the Vinaya. That was a big shock because, you know, he told the other that you have to have the Vinaya. And then here, this great teacher, Ajahn Chah praises, says you don't need it. So, a bit, because that is, you know, uh, when you've committed yourself to to one teacher's view, then the, then the opposite is, is confusing, or you feel they're wrong. So when I went back to Wat Pong, you know, I told Ajahn Chah what Buddha Das said. <laughs> and then uh, Ajahn Chah said, true but not right, right but not true. <laughs> An interesting reply. Jing that my took, took that my jing. He said, in Thai you can, you can say it very nicely. So it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, and so, you know, this, this was like a koan. You know, because my mindset was, well, if it's right, it's true, and if it's true, it's right. You know, that's my logic from my Christian background. If it's true, then it's right. And, and anything right is true. Not you, I mean, that's kind of just common sense, isn't it? <laughs> and then Lung Pa Cha said, true but not right, right but not true. And that was, that put me in the state of more confusion. <laughs> <laughs> so that, but it actually meant a lot because if, if Lung Pa Cha said Buddha Dasa is wrong, then I would have. I would have grasped that and said, uh, he's wrong and Anajan Chah's right. Or if I get, become disillusioned with Anajan Chah, then I start thinking, well, maybe Buddha Dasa is right, and Lumpur Chah isn't. So you're in this, you know, according to grasping of right and wrong. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, this is like, this is. Uh, you know, you don't need, you don't have to have, you don't have to become a monastic or keep the Vinaya as, you know, as an absolute. Or to, to hold that, you know, that you, you have to, you have to or you don't have to. So this is, that's another Sakyaditi, to hold that you have to 
is still Sakyaditi and that you don't have to Sakyaditi. So it's true but not right, right but not true. And this knowing then is what, you know, uh, Lumpur Cha was pointing at. Not taking sides or, you know, putting another teacher down, but pointing to actually what I was, the confusion of my cultural mindset, which was, if it's true, it's right. So this is, you know, then, uh, then one time, you know, he, he, Ajahn Chah said to me, you must be confused sometimes, Sumato, because Dhamma is all about letting go and Vinaya is all about attachment. So in the Theravada tradition, the, before the Buddha passed away, he said, I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya. So he's got the Dhamma and the Vinaya. And then Lumpa Chah says, well, Dhamma is let, all about letting go and Vinaya is about attachment. <laughs> so this is, and so, so he said, when you figure this out, you'll be okay. There's another. But these things do, you know, they stay in, in you know, I found them quite useful because you, you can, you know, when you're training with conventional forms and they're very strict and, uh, you know, and, and, and we hold, you know, the sense of purity of Vinaya and, and tradition and so forth. This is, this becomes very, this can make us very cultish and very, uh, you know, very critical of anything that isn't quite up to our standard. The higher standards you have, the more critical you become of everyone else. So having high standards is good, isn't it? We think to have high principles and high standards. <clears throat> you know, you say, that's a praise. He, uh, she has very high standards. She's a very principled person. Is a, is a compliment. <clears throat> then also, if one attaches to print, print high principles and standards out of ignorance, then you become supercilious. You start looking down on others whose standards are lower. You say, seeing yourself as superior. You say, I have much more integrity. I'm much more honest. I would never stoop to, to do the things that person does because my, I'm principled and I have very high standards for life. And, and so then you find you know, yourself in a state of criticizing others all the time. That, that don't live up to your principles or standards. So notice that this is dualism of, you know, high and low principles as, uh, which are good, you know, high principles are good. But notice it's the ignorance, the avicca, the identity with, it, with this and the clinging, the, 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 the attachment to these high standards leads to suffering. Now this, you, you, uh, there's a point of uh, investigating this, to find, investigation, finding this out. Because, recognize one's own cultural conditioning is, you know, in my instance, because <clears throat> I can only speak from my own experience, but the, the, I had a very strong dualistic mindset. And the way I picked up strict Vinaya, was a very highly principled standard of righteousness. And I suffered a lot from that. <laughs> and, and then, uh, then uh, Dhamma, of course, is, is, uh, is about letting go. So if, but if you attach to, to fixed views about Dhamma, like, Orthodox Theravada says this, or, you know, we, we quote scriptures to prove our point. So, you know, I've seen uh, monks who are in authoritative positions, you know, they, they get in terrible arguments about uh, the scriptures. So, one, you know, the, the Paticca Samupada, the dependent origination, there used to be a, you know, a quarrel going on. 
in, in about whether it's three life theory or simultaneous arising in the present. And one monk said, it's not that simultaneous arising in the present, rubbish. <laughs> it's three lies and that's it. And then he'd start with authority and then he, then he would quote proof for this position from scriptures, from Pali scriptures. And then you could do the same for the other. You can find quotes from Pali Buddhism that support simultaneous arising. So then, maybe both are right or wrong. <laughs> but anyway, you know, when you... Now my experience of this was, uh, you know, the, the more authoritative and certain and opinionated somebody was, it was very powerful, you know. I know that it's three lives and the other is wrong. It's heresy. And then now that affects my dualistic Christian background. I was brought up in the, in the uh, Episcopal Church, but it was a very high church. You know, very, what we call Anglo-Catholic. So it was the only one in Seattle, you know. And it was, we were very snooty. We, you know, everybody in this church thought they were better than all the Protestants and, and the low church Episcopalians. It was, you know, you, you develop this sense of superiority. And, um, and this, and what's right and, and how principles and standards. And, and I remember uh, during my childhood, the priest would, you know, if he didn't cross himself in the right places, there'd be like a whole, you know, uh, a protest. <laughs> that he was letting down the high principles of our church. And, and that, uh, you know, so there was endless criticisms going on about what is a real Christian message and what is right and what is wrong. And so... The, this church had certain good qualities, you know. High church Anglicanism is quite beautiful, so it has beautiful ceremonies and it's quite moving. But on the level of grasping uh, in this position, it became very cruel and narrow-minded. So this is, uh, you know, seeing that as a child growing up in that environment, it really put me off. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, I don't want to be like that. It's, you know, I don't like, I don't want to be exclusive and snobbish and, and uh, you know, look, feel always that I have to protect the purity and the sanctity by, you know, rubbishing everyone else that doesn't agree. So that's one of the attractions to, to, uh, that I found that drew me to Buddhism was that it was a questioning investigation of life, not a, not, not just a high standard, principle standard, uh, you know, absolutizing morality and then, and then judging everything else by these high standards and high principles and orthodox teachings. Because I've heard Buddhist monks say, all the other religions are, you know, they're wrong, and it's Theravada Buddhism that is the real Buddhism. It's the original Buddhism, and Mahayana Buddhism is not, the Buddha didn't teach that. And, and so they, they come from this position of we're right, and everyone else is wrong. That's dualism, isn't it? That's attachment to a position. Now you can check this out in your own, you know, this is thinking. Thinking is like this, right and wrong, or opposed to each other. <clears throat> and so then, or cancel out each other. Then you have in, in uh, Eastern thought, you have, you have uh, right, wrong, both right and wrong, neither right nor wrong. You have much more, you know, intellectually you're given you're given a freedom that you don't have in this very dualistic, tight structure that, that I was conditioned with. 
because I found it, you know, very, as a, as a way of thinking, uh, very, uh, you know, it, very uncomfortable. But that's how I thought. That's the thought patterns were, create, were, were from that, that assumption, that cultural religious assumption of absolutizing right and wrong, heaven and hell, good and bad. Now, in uh, this is where, where this, uh, you know, the, this emphasis on there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Therefore, there is escape from the born, the created, the form, the condition. Now, nothing like that ever, you know, that that would have made no sense to me from that dualistic way of thinking. This is, you know, this is. Uh, or you can oppose, you know, the unconditioned is here and the conditioned is here, never the twain shall meet. Or, you know, in Theravada sometimes monks will say, you know, they, they don't like this idea, uh, samsara and nibbana as being together. They, they, they're totally separate. This is samsara, this is nibbana. <clears throat> and so this is still dualism, isn't it? Uh, but, and you can say unconditioned and conditioned is dualism. But it's not, you know, recognize that this is, it's the unconditioned is not to, is not defined. It's not a principle, it has no images, but it's recognizable. And then the Buddha points to the way to recognize the unborn, uncreated is with awareness. So the gates to the deathless are open. A deathless, what's that? Can you imagine the deathless? Well, when I start thinking of unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, trying to think of it in, in just with, with my thoughts, it, it ends up as a kind of annihilation. If there's nothing, you know, the, the whole aim is to, to realize, to... Uh, abide in the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. There's no self, no soul, no God. It's merely, you know, all this, this self, this culture, uh, your own thinking process, uh, you relinquish it, you get rid of it, and then you're, and that sounds like annihilation. You know, I, I have no personality, it's all rubbish, everything is delusion, and so the aim of a Buddhist is to extinguish the world, is to get rid of yourself. And when there's no world, no self, there's nothing. That's, the, that's how the thinking process works. Now the wisdom faculty is, in the, and in the first sermon, uh, the Tamajaka Pawatana Sutta, after the Buddha's enlightenment, it, he said this is not eternalism nor annihilationism. This is Machima Bhatibhata, the middle way. Gama Sukalikanu Yoko Atakilamatana Yoko. This is one extreme, the eternalist one and the annihilationist one. He said this is not annihilation. <clears throat> Nor is it eternalism, which is like, like you, the Western view of immortality, like Greek gods as being immortal, is that they're born, but they never die. You know, the, like you can have Hera or Zeus, Aphrodite, and so forth. And they have form, they're female, male, uh, they have different qualities, but they're immortals. And they were born, and but they never die. Well, that is, you know, inter, uh, this is like uh, so. We, our view of immortality, which really means deathless, is about being born and then li that's eternalism. You know, where where you you rewarded your eternal soul, which is you, your personality, really. Uh, goes and lives forever with Jesus that's, and God. That's eternalism. Or the other is uh, you, 
when you're dead, you're dead, nothing left, oblivion, zero. Dark hole, black hole, void. And so these are the two extremes. Now, those are extremes in, the, in conceptualization, isn't it, in thinking. Now notice that in the unborn, this is just a negation of the born, the unborn. It's not a denial or a judgment. But what is it? You know, it's not, it's not, you don't grasp the concept of the unborn and not ask to do that or believe in the unborn, but to, you know, to awaken. So this, this is the essence of Buddhism, of Buddha Dhamma is awakened consciousness. So it's like wake up here and now, simple as that. Awake, the gate to the deathless is open. Then, then your relationship to the conditioned or the sangsara is knowing it. So you're not, you know, you're not annihilating it or destroying it, but knowing. And you're seeing it as it is. You're seeing conditioned phenomena is impermanent. Anicca dukkanata. But you're not projecting those concepts onto the body or anything. You're, you know, these are more guide, helpful suggestions towards observing. Uh, because, you know, we, with a dualistic structure of thinking, then you're, you, don't, you don't tend to, to notice how things change or the ending of things. So there's always a hope that, that we can get... I've heard in modern times people say, we, we will conquer death. You know, we already are overpopulated on this planet. <laughs> and then just think, if I'm going to live forever in this body, that's not very happy thought, is it? <laughs> I mean, I'm tired of it already. To make it live forever is, is a nightmare, like the <laughs> Flying Dutchman. You just, uh, you know, it, it, but then if, if you've never questioned or examined or investigated re- your life or consciousness, then you, you might be afraid of death. So you'd rather spend forever in your human body when it's 74 years old. Imagine having to be 74 forever. <laughs> it's better to get you when you're young and beautiful. <laughs> but anyway, I missed, I missed that possibility. <laughs> so the, uh, <laughs> this, you know, the, that, that isn't, it isn't Dhamma. It's not, it, we would say that's not Dhamma. It's not the way things are. So when you point to the Dhamma, it's not a critical or judgmental function. It's, it's a discerning. Now this word discern is about sati, sampachanya, sati panya. So what do you discern? Is it like you, you, we are experiencing conditioned phenomena right now with the body as it is, with your uh, you know, sense experiences, your eyes. It's like... I've had a lot of, uh, I've had uh, this macular degeneration. So I've had to, you know, deal with uh, fading vision and things like this as I get older. So this is, my eyes are degenerating. This is, uh, this is, you know, the, the way it is. It, the conditions are impermanent. So it, it, this is more useful way of reflecting than from Sakidya. I don't know. How can we? I don't want to go blind. You know, just, you know then I get into a panic and, and uh, it's all pretty miserable even before anything like that happened. Now they all, you know, they talk uh, in Britain, they talk about macular generation all the time. It's, it's the, you know, everybody's working the ways of curing up. Had, 
treatments it's in Bangkok at a very good eye hospital. You know, they they have all kinds of ways of helping now. So it's not you know, but to have, say fix my eyes so that they were like they were before I was forty, forever. I, I have no longing for that. You know. <laughs> This is good enough, you know, until the body uh, dies. But it's, you know, death is just the end of, a, of what was born. So this body was born and it will die. And that's, that's Dhamma. You're seeing it in terms of Dhamma or the way it is. Did I ask to, for this body? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't even remember being born. Uh, but my mother does did. <laughs> so, you know, and so it makes, uh, you know, it seems reasonable to to assume that uh, this body was born, because everyone else's is. So, then it's, it's this age, and you know, it will die. But did I ask for this? I don't remember asking for it. This is what happened. You know, so, this is, um, so it, it's not like I'm, I, you know, the body isn't mine. It is is like the trees or any other forms in nature, natural forms. Uh, they, they arise and cease. They are born and they live their span and die. And that's the way it is. So that which knows the birth and the death. Like I don't remember being physically being born, but I've seen a lot of mental births arise. You know, emotional uh, surges or thoughts like this. You know, as your mind, you become aware when things arise in you, when, when things begin and end, when, you know, happiness is present and when it's absent. That's discernment, isn't it? Happiness is, I feel happy now, and then when it's not, when it's absent, it's, uh, it's not unhappy. You know, the absence of happiness isn't unhappiness, but it's, it, you know, when that feeling of getting what I want and being on top of the world is, is no longer present, then there's a recognition of its absence. That's discerning. So, you know, if, if um, the condition for happiness, if I attach to it as some kind of personal need and goal in life to be forever happy and always seek happiness as my goal, then, then I'm constantly on the, you know, trying to, you know, do the very things that make me happy. So, you know, like saying getting what you want make, is a form of happiness. You know, that kind of feeling when you want something and you get it and you feel this, like this. I, feel, I call that one form of happiness. Well, then I get what I want. I have a few moments of happiness. It's gone. <laughs> I can't sustain it. And so then it, and then the discerning, when, you know, you begin to see you know, when you get what you want, it's like this, and then, but, but then it's not permanent. It 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 changes, and then it's not that it's not unhappy, but it's like this. And so this is where this this sound of silence or this unborn, uncreated attitude is more. So you're you're informing yourself around the gaps or what most of life is really, you know, what you're experiencing, what's happening all the time. So you're not just living your life for those peak moments when you get what you want and the rest is just spend desperately trying to get what you want. And we can live our lives always trying to become a millionaire or become, you know, get something we want. And, and we can make, do, you know, work very hard and be miserable and, and uh, tense and get heart problems and diabetes, working desperately so that we can make lots of money 
because that's what I want. And so then, say I'm successful, I make lots of money, and then what happens? If I'm not very mindful, then, then I want more money than that. You know, so it goes on and on and on. So, or then there's the fear of losing it. And, or then you begin to awaken. Is this how I want to spend my life? Just trying to get more, trying to find happiness by so much of my life being quite stressed and miserable. You know, working hard and, and, and doing all kinds of things to, to make lots of money. And then when I do get it, you know, then you do. You, it, it, you have a certain feeling of success and happiness. But it's not, it, it goes away. So you discern. In, and through this discernment, then the wisdom is, you know, you begin, you see that if you're constantly caught up in desire for success, worldly success, that, that um, you know, there's always this anxiety about not being, of being a failure. If you... Uh, if you want success, you always have the fear of failure. They go together. You get one with the other. Because that's dualistic. That's the way conditioned phenomena work. If you have birth and you have death, you know, because we are born, we're going to die, these bodies. It's the way, the way it is. It's, so birth is the, is the cause of death. Those that are never born never die. <laughs> you know, it's probably all kind. Of, you know, the unconditioned. If we recognize the unborn, which is here and now, then, then this, the that which is born and dies or begins and ends is seen in terms of. You know, it, it's it's not a, a judgment, or we know we can discern its quality, but and you know our intention for living for, you know, is, is to do good and refrain from doing the bad things. So that, you know, we, we can, you know, with mindfulness, then we, we have spontaneity. We can, we can respond to life. And, and that awakenness is based on metta and compassion so that we our relationship to the society, to family, to friends, to the world around us. It's not just indifference, you know, everything's going to die anyway, so, and everything, it's all an illusion, so, to hell with it. <laughs> it's not, that's not, that's not wisdom or discernment, it's merely rejection, judgment, meaning that because it's impermanent, it isn't any good. But conditions vary. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they aren't. You know, one conditions the other. Nothing's permanently good. High principles and high standards, high ideals are good. But by grasping them out of ignorance, then you're going to be quite miserable. Because life isn't about, you know, it's not about everything should, you get into this, it should be. You know, we should all be high principled with high standards of conduct and we should all be good and we should all be, then it is into the, the shoulds and the idealism. And then we see, you know, from our experience of life that that's not the way life is. And if we have no wisdom, then we'd, we'd become cynical and embittered. You know, we're cynics. We're once probably idealist, ide idealistic people with high principles, because they, you know, it's all, you know, you, you become disillusioned when you, through experience, if you're attached to, to high high ideals and standards and principles out of ignorance. So then these these are seen in terms of like guiding stars, high ideals and high standards and high principles, you know, they are beautiful. 
like a, a guiding star, it's high up in the sky. You'll never reach it. But it, it, it guides you on the path. <laughs> you know, it's something to, to keep, you know, to, to use. But you can't always, if you're, if you're always looking at the, at the guiding star, you're going to fall off the cliff. <laughs> you also need to know where you are. You know, look at the ground and observe, you know, the ditch or the, or the uh, barrier. Or the rattlesnake. You know, you walk around here with your eyes up in the stars, you'll, you can get bit by a rattlesnake. <laughs> so we need, <laughs> we need also to keep aware of the ground and where we are, where this body is. And, and one doesn't cancel out the other. You know, so that, that it's not a matter of we shouldn't be idealistic or have ideals. It's how, how, how to use ideals so that they're guides rather than, than Sakya Ditti. Because being human is like this, it's not an ideal state. You know, you, we have to deal with old age, which is not an ideal state. It is the way it is. When we create an ideal image of a man or woman, it's usually, you know, uh, a perfection in form of the male or female form in marble or some beautiful substance. And, and, and when they're young, young and beautiful, and so it, and, you know, and, they, and so you can create an ideal female form or an ideal male form out of marble or, or copper or whatever. But our forms are not that, you know, they're like this. Skin and blood and nerves. And so you're, you're, you're you know, you're, co you're beginning to inf inform yourself that the human birth, the human condition, it's like this. It's not about becoming a marble statue, but about being awake and aware within the limitations you find yourself, even if you, you know, you you have all kinds of physical disabilities and and uh, infirmities. These are not obstructions to enlightenment. You don't need the perfect physical body for enlightenment because none of us would have any hope for that. Uh, and so it's it's, but it is. Uh, so we idealize form, which is fine, but recognize it is, it is a, an ideal. And ideals, marble statues don't feel anything. So we have to feel life, you know, with, with our human, you know, human state. This is, a, as I've said before, sensitivity. This is the total sensitivity from birth to death. And sensitivity means that you, you don't just feel pleasure and beauty, is it? If there's pleasure, there's pain. If there's beauty, there's ugliness. They go together. If there's birth, there's death. They belong to each other. <clears throat> and so this awareness of that is not critical or judgmental. If I'm being judgmental, then I think, that's wrong. You know, if I were God, I would have created permanent beauty and pleasure. I would not have, when I was a child, you know, brought up as a Christian, I used to wonder, why did God create pain? Because, you know, as a little boy, you know, fall down, hurt yourself, and pain, you know, why, if God created everything, why did God create pain? I wouldn't have. If I were God, I'd never... I wouldn't have created mosquitoes, for one thing. I wouldn't have created... <laughs> so it's, uh, and then my mother would say, well, you know, we, uh, you know, she'd find some way of explaining it. You know? But it was, uh, you know, this ideal of, uh, of God creating everything as an ideal. But then, then in Dhamma practice, we're noticing the way it is. 
it's not an ideal, but it's like this, the way it is. Uh, and and it's not the way it is is not a, a you know it's not a passive uh, kind of negative resignation to to misery, but it's 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 a very a way of reminding yourself life is like this. The question about if everything's perfect, then what about what happened in Burma? Is that perfect? Well, no. Perfection isn't about the condition. The perfection of this is, is uh, there is the unborn, therefore there's escape from the born. But, it, it, you know, what's happened, uh, you know, the tsunami or the catastrophes in Burma and China, these are, they, you know, the one, wanting to blame people for them or, you know, the governments or, but it's Mother Nature or blame Mother Nature or God sending punishment down because uh, Burmese are so wicked they needed to be <laughs> but they got the wrong Burmese didn't they <laughs> they didn't they didn't kill the wicked ones so then but notice that it's not justifying but recognizing that planet life and having a body like this we're subject to the, the changes of planets and earth and earthquakes and, and typhoons and all the rest. These, these are just a part of this realm that, you know, that we, you know, that affect our lives. But our refuge is not in getting rid of them or blaming them, on, but in in finding of re- realizing the deathless here and now in this moment, where then when these things happen to us, we have, you know, we probably have a much better ability to deal with catastrophe than if we didn't know, if all we had was just ignorance and, and a sense of loss and despair that comes from losing the loved and property and all the rest. So, I offer this for your consideration. Sankang Naman 